but everything that you're taught pretty much is goes against um, what efficient trumpet playing is. You know, like the pedagogy in my this is just my estimation. The ped, 99% of the pedagogy around the trumpet is incorrect, um, which is why there's so many bad trumpet players. You know, it's just <laughs> there's more bad ones than there is good ones. So. This episode contains adult language and adult humor. Since when have trumpet players ever been considered adults? If you are easily offended by these types of conversations, consider switching to the oboe. Welcome to the Trumpet Guru Tang Podcast. I'm your host, Jose Johnson. My guest for this episode is Mike Sailors. Mike, well, he's committed to figuring things out. A talented performer, composer, and educator, Mike's career was almost cut short by severe chop problems. But with the help of fellow trumpet gurus like Rich Willie and Peter Bond, Mike went on to forge a successful career in New York City before returning to his alma mater in Austin, where he is committed to helping a new generation of trumpet players avoid the same mistakes that he made. So, pour yourself a big glass, pull up a chair, and let the hang begin! All right, and here we are, another fantastic episode of the Trumpet Gurus Hang, and I am joined by a Mr. Michael Sailors. Mike, how are you, my friend? I'm doing good, my friend. How are you? Oh man, I'm just I'm just enjoying life. You know, it's uh, it's it's yeah, a crazy it, it, it's a crazy world, but uh, you know, we got we got to find our peace wherever we can, and and sometimes uh, my peace is just having a a nice cup of tea and talking with a, a fellow trumpet player. So, uh, <laughs> I hear thanks, that. Thanks yeah, man. for participating in my therapy here. Of so, course, I, like I told you, I'm a big fan of your podcast, so I'm uh, I'm honored to be a guest on it. Oh, I'm glad we can make this happen. And yeah, you have uh, you have yeah. been a connection for me for a few players. Yeah, so you've you've mm-hmm. connected me with a few different people, um, and you were uh, recommended by uh my recent hang with with rich willie and yes. rich was was uh talking about some of the the stuff that he's been going through and kind of uh retooling his chops and stuff and and trying to make get things back to working and he goes you should really talk to mike sailors man because <laughs> he, he figured it out i mean that that guy sounded so great so uh he's like i was like yeah you know mike and i've been chatting about some stuff i got to get him on the show so here we are. So let's actually start there. You know, you've been, uh, you know, uh, Rich saying that that you've been doing uh, uh, the kind of the retooling with the Reinhardt stuff and and uh, revamping your your playing. I mean, when when did that come about? How did that come about? And, and what are some of the changes that you've been seeing? I met Rich when I was um, during, doing my master's degree at Michigan State, and um, I was having like career ending job problems. Um, Mm. and, uh, so when I went to go see him initially, it's because I was reading things that he was writing online, um, about Reinhardt and how, you know, Reinhardt was really about taking broken down trumpet players and then, you know, fixing them, which is what was, what did I was, what I was experiencing. I mean, I really, I couldn't play like a C in the staff, you know, it was, I would go to play and it just would be air uh, and it would hurt when I played. So I did, um, I moved to Michigan to do my master's degree at Michigan state and 
During my undergrad, I was a lead player and trying to learn how to play jazz, but not really a great jazz player. But I could play the trumpet when I was in my undergrad. You know, I, I, I wasn't a great trumpet player. I wasn't a great musician, but I could play high notes and I could play loud and all that stuff. So when I got out of school, um, I started working, you know, professionally and I did some cruise ship stuff and was playing in some bands around North Carolina. And I started just injuring my top lip a lot. And uh, it got to the point where when I relocated to Michigan, it just, my top lip just gave out, you know, it just stopped. Um, I stopped doing anything, you know? So I, when I found Rich when I, during the first lesson I had with him, I, I literally couldn't play, you know? And he would probably tell you the same. I, I just, uh, it was just air, you know? And by the time I left the lesson, I was playing like I wasn't even hurt anymore after that. So. The, you know, the Reinhardt stuff really got me playing again. And then over the course of the last 12 years or so, I've been able to take it and drop some things, introduce other things by taking lessons. I, I studied with Peter Bond for a little bit when I was in New York. And his approach paired with Reinhardt really was the solution for me, you know. Um, and so it's been a long road. I mean, somebody who was smarter probably would have quit uh, <laughs> a long time ago. I struggled a, uh, for a, a long time, but I, I, I do feel like now I've figured something out to where I know when I pick up the instrument, I know what it's going to do, you know, <laughs> whereas it's, I spent a long time um, not know, opening the case and not knowing what was going to happen, whether I was going to be able to play or make the job or not and just struggle and have to hide, you know, so um, Rich and a couple others, Doug Elliott is a great trombone player who really knows Reinhardt stuff really well. Um, uh, Dave Sheets in New Hampshire. I went and studied with him when I was in Michigan. Those guys really, if it wasn't for those guys, I would have quit. I mean, just no way I would have been able to make a career playing. I just couldn't physically play the instrument. No. But, you know, it, it's, it's amazing. I mean, it's frightening uh, how many people have experienced those sort of situations. And yeah. uh, I guess what, what you, because what you never know is how many people never found the help that they needed to get through yes. those. How, how many guys had have tremendous ideas and tremendous uh, contrib contributions they could make to to the trumpet community, but they just you know got stommy by the fact that they couldn't play anymore. Yeah. Um, so hearing hearing from somebody how you know I had this problem, it was career ending, but. I was able to find a solution that, yeah, you know, things like that give me hope. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I, a lot of people contact me now to take a lesson or two to, because they've read and know about me being able to overcome issues and they're having their own issues. And so I, I tell them all the same thing. If I can figure it out, then like literally anybody can, I'm not, I'm not, I, you know, I'm not, not that smart of a guy, I don't think. I mean, I've, you know, I'm not an idiot, but you know, it, it, the problems I had were so, I mean, I literally just couldn't play the instrument. I, after a long time, you know, I was sort of naturally gifted at the instrument when I was a young person and I, I took to it very quickly, but I spent a long time, like I said, just being able, like not being able to play at all. So if I can figure it out, um, I know anybody can. And the way that I play now, it's not hard to, get into your own plan. I, I want to also 
drop another name that really helped me is Brian Davis, who I know you've had on your podcast. He also helped me tremendously in his approach. And, and for me, it, uh, when most people who are having issues, they're doing what most teachers tell them to do, which is to put a lot of air through the instrument. And that way, um, some people can seem to make it work, but the majority can't. And a lot of my teaching at the university here and in doing uh, private sessions with people who are having problems, it's undoing that very ingrained habit of trying to put a lot of air to the instrument. Um, it's just not a very fun way to play, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. It, and to me, um, I always feel like uh, it, when I have a problem, I want to find the player or the the professional and whatever avenue it is that has had the most trouble. You know, I, I yeah. don't I don't want to talk to the guy that that you know picked it up and was playing double C's and triple tonguing. And I don't that. either. Yeah, I don't either. They got yeah. nothing to teach me. You know, and, and when I exactly and, and and no and no nothing against those people either you know there's some people who just they play the instrument so naturally that you can't tell them what to do because even introducing a thought into their playing process might mess up the thing they have you know but i, I like i said i tell i i work with some students here at ut that are uh not in my studio but they're in the classical studio split class beside the school and there's wonderful players in that studio some of them are having really bad job problems and um, I tell them all the same thing, you know, it's playing the trumpet, it's deceivingly easy, but everything that you're taught pretty much is, goes against um, what efficient trumpet playing is. You know, like the pedagogy, in my, this is my estimation, the 99% of the pedagogy around the trumpet is incorrect, um, which is why there's so many bad trumpet players, you know. It's just, <laughs> there's more bad ones than there is good ones. So, um, so in my teaching at UT, you know, I, I, I have one student who just graduated who, when he first started studying with me, he like couldn't play above a C in the staff. And so now he just did a senior recital and did all these hard classical pieces and sounded great, you know? So, and it's, I don't think it's cause I'm a great teacher. It's just the things that I've learned through my own struggles. I've seen them time and time again, work for people just because it takes this sort of machismo thing out of the instrument that is so ingrained in the pedagogy. So we have to blow a lot of air to the instrument. We've got to support here. We've got to do this. We've got to do that. It's just not musical. You know, I, I, I heard this from somebody one time and I tell my students this all the time. I said, you know, when an oboe player in an orchestra has a big solo coming up, they're not thinking like trumpet players do. They're not thinking, oh, I have to project my sound over the orchestra, oh, I want to make sure the people in the last row hear me. They just play beautifully and musically. But you give that same solo to, solo to a trumpet player who doesn't really understand the instrument, and they're, they're thinking all the wrong things. They're not thinking musically. They're thinking, oh, I got to take this big breath, and I got to do this, I got to do that, I got to support here. I, it's just, uh, and again, I, I, a lot of that has to do with the pedagogy of the instrument, just how the instrument is taught. I, in my estimation, a lot of it's not great, great advice. You know, so. Well, so where do you think that came from? I mean, it, it had to start somewhere. I don't know. I mean, I don't know. 
<laughs> I, you know, maybe a lot of it has to do with teachers who are great players, but they don't really understand, you know, how they do their thing. I, I don't know. I mean, I've been on the receiving end of a lot of that type of instruction and, and, and did very poorly with it, you know? So uh, the, the great, I, to me, the great thinkers on the instrument right now are people like Peter Bond, um, Brian Davis, uh, gosh, Malcolm McNabb, you know, people who are, who are preaching efficiency, you know, like efficiency of tone, beauty of tone, um, and not sort of go into the default, like, okay, this is how we blow play when you to me any sort of pedagogy that's that's surrounding like how we blow or how we you know it's just doesn't work for a lot of people it works for some don't get me wrong but um and that's not to say the people who teach this i i'm not saying that they're doing this uh, on purpose or i'm not saying that at all and it does work for some people but i think the majority of people that kind of teaching is um not great for people who are struggling with the instrument, which is a lot of trumpet players, you know, just yeah. struggling with the, the, the production of tone. And I, I, if the pedagogy was more revolved around getting a beautiful sound that is got some sweetness in it, it's, you know, I think that would produce more trumpet players, more great trumpet players. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, I'm yeah. kind of rambling, but... Yeah. No, but but I mean, so like, um, I just was recently working on a a, a project proposal for a, a corporate training about stress reduction and burnout. And as I'm discussing with them, you know, and saying, you know, well, here here's the problem: is that there's no one solution. You know, I can't just yes. say this is the way you deal with burnout. I said, you know, there there in the psych in the world of psychology, there's this uh, five stages of burnout. And you have to be able to identify what stage you're in, because what I would tell you if you're in the first stage is completely different from what I would tell you to do if you're in the fifth stage. Yeah. So, yeah. Yes. you know, and, and I think sometimes that that's what happens is that, yeah, you know, you're going to have players who need to work on their breath or on their, you know, the air or the support or the compression or you know how you're blowing. But that's for a specific time in a specific place in your in your playing and if you got that going on then you don't need to beat that dead horse you're going to need to work on something right. else so i i think sometimes right. that, that we just want to we want to latch on to what's well what's the one thing that's going to help me to play better yes well that's that's a great point because you know some a lot if you know peter bond's teaching this is a lot of his stuff is kind of what i tell people and what has worked for me I think, and what I tell people is that breathing and playing the trumpet, how I breathe, how I'm talking to you is exactly how I breathe when I play. It's literally no difference. And the way that I'm articulating the words I'm speaking is exactly the way I articulate when I play the trumpet. And the problem with the pedagogy that a lot of people introduce to students is that they set, they make trumpet playing, the breathing and the tonguing different than what we do every day. It, you know, you're a great breather. You know, you're alive. So yeah. you're an expert at breathing, you know. Right. If you're alive, you're an expert at breathing, you know. If you don't have some sort of respiratory issue. So, you know, I, I see people coming in to me and they're, and they're doing this kind of thing. And the breathing is like, 
wow, that's really bad. You know, that's, you know, <laughs> the amateur can be made to reflect any sort of teaching concept, but, and if you play, if you play like that and you sound good, more power to you. But the majority of people that I've seen, they don't sound good. And it has to do a lot with what they think they should be doing. It's like taking this monster breath and, and preparing your body for it. And, you know, I like this hole is only so big. <laughs> we only can put so much air in this thing. So if it's a volume of air thing, then um, you could give the trumpet to any single person and just say, hey, blow as much air as you can into this instrument. And then they'd be able to figure it out. But that's obviously not the situation. So. Yeah. Um, so I try to make everything just as natural as possible. And then if, you know, and then tweak it from there rather than having to have students do these sort of special things like, okay, we have to support from here. We have to do this. We have to do that. I, I to me, it's making it as natural as possible is sort of the best way that I found in my own teaching, but you know, I, I haven't been teaching as long as other people. So maybe I'm missing something. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, definitely, it does sound like uh, you're you have that mindset already of that uh, this is a this is a constantly evolving process. There's always going to be more 100%. information that, that you're going to need to to learn and to incorporate into what you do. So, I mean, yeah. how do you just? Oh my God, I could just I could talk about that for days because I mean, half of it would be bitching about how bad it is. And then, <laughs> and then it would be like, you yeah. know, trying to find creative solutions. But, you know, when I ask you about like, you know, why, why we might have some of these problems, um, you know, I was, I, I thought about this recently and as much, and I'm going to do this with a caveat. This is one of my favorite trumpet players of all time, but mm -hmm. he's even said he screwed a lot of people up and it is Maynard Ferguson. <laughs> and Maynard, sure, yeah. you know, the thing about Maynard was so much of what he did was showmanship. You know, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, the big lift the bell up, crank down all the, the gyrations and stuff like that. Um, you know, there, there was a lot of showmanship involved in that. And, I, you know, as a kid, I tried to imitate that. And, you know, if we talk about like the Reinhardt concepts, it was um, the opposite of what I needed to do as a, as a four, that was the opposite of what I needed to do in terms of the track of my, my pivot for, for sure. the, uh, so I actually, even though I was getting some results, I kind of was messing myself up a little bit too with that. So it's like, if you, if just right. because you look like Maynard and you try to it's just like just because you you play with your head down and your back turned to the audience means you're going to sound like miles davis you know it's like right what, right right so much of what these people what great artists do is they create a personality around their playing uh yes. and sometimes it's not it's not always conducive uh to the betterment of players if players are younger players are are following the physical example of what they're doing as opposed to the mechanical things that they're doing, which you can't see because it's all going on inside the mouth and, you know, the head. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. That's, yeah. I mean, I was the same way as a kid, you know, I, when I, I was luckily born when, you know, I, I'm old enough to know when Maynard was alive. So I got to see him live, you know, <laughs> So I saw him do all that same stuff, but 
The other thing that it, you don't know when you're watching Maynard, and I know this because I know people that run this band, was that you know Maynard's wedges were like he was <laughs> kind of hilariously known. His wedges that we have in front of him were like comically loud, like they're screaming loud, you know. So he really wanted to hear himself, right? And um, to me, when I hear that, I I think, oh, well, okay, he's just playing really relaxed and he wants to hear himself really well, which is why he's so cranked, you know? Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know how he played or or what he thought about, but um, I only know what works for me and what doesn't work for me. And that sort of thing that you can glean from his playing where he's like, okay, he's sucking all the room in the air and then putting it all through the horn. Um, that just doesn't work. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's, and anybody can sort of try to play that way, that way that it appears and, and find out for themselves. They're going to, they're going to pass out probably in the first song after they try to play a high note and do that, which I have done several times in my youth, you know? Um, but yeah, so the trumpet is to me, I think that I always tell people this is or my students, the trumpet is kind of like, a world of opposites situation you know if you want to be able to if you want to be have a big sound you got to aim small if you want to be able to play really high you got to aim small and then learn how to get these notes to to how to get the note and then learn how to sort of lean on it to get a, some volume but um you know yeah so uh, you know i like i said i could go on for for hours about about this about pedagogy and stuff and and truthfully it took sort of the pandemic for me i i was able to make the most progress i've made in years sort of during the pandemic because gigs stopped and uh i you know a lot of practicing in uh in this little i call this like my little jail cells this is in my backyard you know and it's completely dead in here and practicing and not worrying about um, trying to play over a band or something like, okay, let's just get my fundamentals really happening. And, and the, my overall thing is I, I think people play way too loud and they're not understanding that the sound that they're hearing is not the sound that the people in the audience hear. This instrument is a very directional instrument. We don't have to make this instrument project. It's designed to project, you know, and the sound that somebody 20 feet away hears is not the sound that we hear. And you can learn to trust that your sound is going. You can get out of this sort of habitual thing of trying to play too loud um, because the sound is its best 20, 30 feet away, you know, um, and so it takes a lot of uh, courage to be able to play that way. But I think when you start to learn how to play that way, you start to find it. Okay. I, oh, I'm really not tired of the end of this four hour gig. Like, Oh, okay. I'm not really, I can play in tune. Oh, my articulation is really even all over the course of my registers. I wish I'd have found this out when I was living in New York. I, I mean, I spent a fair amount of time in the first part of my time in New York kind of struggling because hear these great trumpet players and I was trying to keep up with their sounds and trying to play way too loud. And, um, and I did, like I said, I didn't really figure out this part of the playing out until the last five years or so. Glad I did, but I wish I'd have figured it out in my twenties. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Man, life would be a lot different, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It is what yeah. it is. So, yeah. um, yeah. So uh, speaking of which, like uh, you, you've had, uh, 
you had your career uh, in New York, and now you're uh, in Texas. So, you know, what what what's kind of been the driving arc for you to you know that move from you're originally from from South Carolina, correct? I was born in Charleston, but I grew up in North Carolina. Yeah, Charleston, South okay. Carolina, North Carolina. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, so you know, what what kind of got you from the South to the Northeast now to yeah. Texas? Yeah. Well, I um, well, I, you know, I did my undergrad in North Carolina at the, at the University of North Carolina in Greensboro, and then I moved to Michigan for um, three years. I did my master's degree there. That's where I started really having all my plane problems, but through my time with Rich Willie and a couple other guys, I was able to get enough chops together to move here to Austin. So I lived in Austin before I lived in New York. Um, so I, and I did a degree here at the university. So, uh, when I was here, I was, you know, here in Austin, well, the scene back then was a lot different, but back when I was here in the two thousands, there was a lot of horn section work here a lot of like club dates uh and recording sessions and so i was kind of in the thick of that scene doing a lot of that kind of stuff and i met my i met a woman who's now my wife here and when um we first started dating she told me that she was going to move to new york and uh in, in like a year or so and i said okay that's cool you know we were just starting our relationship, so I wasn't really thinking that much of it. But then we started to, you know, get closer, and six months had gone by, and I'd met her family, and uh, it was going really well. And then she told me again, hey, just FYI, in six months, I'm moving to New York. I said, okay, and I didn't really think much of it. I thought I could sort of talk her out of it, you know. And then I graduated school, and for the first time in my life, I was actually making a living playing the trumpet and just playing the trumpet, not doing any sort of teaching because Austin's got a great music scene. It did then and it does now. And um, two months before she said, okay, well, I'm starting to make plans to move to New York. And I was trying to devise a way to talk her out of it. And through that, I just sort of talked myself into it. I said, look, you know, I've always wanted to become, in, in that time, I wasn't really a, a jazz player. I mean, I love jazz music and I consider myself an improviser, but I wasn't good, you know, or anything like that. But I just wanted to be sort of an all-around trumpet player that could play and, you know, make a living. But I'd always wanted to become a jazz trumpet player, like, a, you know, a for real jazz trumpet player. So I told myself, I said, look, I'm, I'll go. I, I'm, I'm in love with this woman. I'll go. I'll give it two years. And if it doesn't, you know, turn out the way I want to, I'll just come back to Austin and I'll play club dates until I want to retire or something. <laughs> you know? So um, I went and it was literally the best thing that ever happened to me. I mean, I met just from the jump, I met so many amazing players and it inspired me to really deal with music in a way that I hadn't dealt with before. And, um, uh, you know, like I said, it was the best thing that ever happened to me um, and was able to, you know, play with a ton of people and go on the road and play on Broadway for, you know, almost five years. And uh, it was like literally the best thing that ever happened to me. So, you know, I was there for around 10 years and around year seven, I started to, I was in the Broadway scene and, 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 
getting on the Broadway scene, as you've probably known because you've talked to a couple of guys who play on the in these shows, you know, it's kind of like the pinnacle of a lot of people's existence, trumpet players anyway, in New York. Once you get on Broadway, it's kind of like, okay, I'm set. I'm going to either be subbing for a while on all the shows or I'm going to get my own show. And you're kind of set financially, you know. But I just felt this sort of, I just knew that it wasn't my lot in life to be sitting in these pits for my, the rest of my life. Even though I really enjoyed it, I just was kind of feeling unfulfilled and unfulfilled in a way that I couldn't shake, you know. And so I came down to UT, I uh, came back to Austin to do uh, a clinic at my, my alma mater, UT, and did a clinic. And the next day, the director of the Jazz Studies program took me out to breakfast and then sort of pitched me the job that they wanted to offer me. Uh, I initially turned it down, went back to New York, I thought for maybe a month or so, and then um, and then I took it. So then I convinced my wife to move back here. So <laughs> that's kind of the short story about how I came and went and came back. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it's kind of an interesting point that you brought up about, you know, the the Broadway scene, you know, if you're in New York, that's that's kind of like the epitome. Uh, in LA, it would be being in the, the session, like the movie session scene. Yeah. Um, and you know, you, you you have people that come into those gigs, and then they they're in there, they're they're in the the hunt, and then all of a sudden go, and eh, now this isn't for me. And you sure, know, right. I think that you you're taught that this is what it means to be a successful player. You know, if you're if you're not playing Broadway, you live in New York, then you're really not successful. If you're not doing you know major uh, studio dates in LA, you're not successful. Uh, if you're not teaching at a university level at one of the major schools and you're not a successful educator. And I think so much of that is, is just complete crap because, oh, yeah. it's you know, all crap. Yeah. It, it's, yeah. it's about what is, where's, where's your passion? Where's your, your talent? Because I mean, you know, like we're talking about teachers, I know great players that are horrible teachers. Uh, and I know good teachers, Me too. <laughs> teachers, teachers that are great at, at doing like this, you know, super high level stuff, but they couldn't teach a beginner. And if we don't have all of those things, then we we're lacking so much of, of the fullness of, of what makes music and, and trumpet playing in specific, such a wonderful thing. So, um, yes. you know, so as a, as an educator, um, you know, how do you help budding students get a better sense of direction, you know, of, yeah. of where they can, they can make the most impact in their lives? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and honestly, that question, the answer to that question is, is why I left, you know, why I wanted to leave. Uh, so let me, I'll answer it, then I'll circle back. So another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. For me, I mean, I'm still figuring it out too. You know, I just finished my third year at UT as the 
uh, you know, jazz trumpet professor. And, um, you know, I'm still learning. You know, I, I luckily had great teachers. And so I have a good model in my mind of what a good teacher is. But, um, you know, each semester with my private students at, at UT, you know, I'm finding like, oh, okay, well, you know, what kind of student is this person and how do I need, what do I need to do to encourage them to get them to be their best self? You know, I know what I need as a, as a student and I know what I respond to, but I realize, you know, I've realized that not everybody's like me. And for me, the most important thing is just being excited about the music, which is not a hard thing for me to do. I, I mean, I, I love, I still love music just as much as I did when I was a kid. So um, I try to be super enthusiastic about playing and working and encouraging students to get out in the scene. We, here in Austin, we're so blessed there's a great music scene here and a great jazz scene not you know a lot of places they've got good music scenes but maybe they don't have a good jazz scene there's a great jazz scene here with great players um and projects and all kinds of stuff of the of people that people are doing so encouraging students to get out on the scene hiring students on my gigs you know even though they might it the the gig might call for something that's a little bit out of their uh ability, you know, but encouraging them to sort of rise up to the occasion, you know, um, but just being enthusiastic about the music, uh, being on top of my stuff on, you know, the horn and, 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 uh, yeah, just being like, just trying to set a good example of what I think students need to be able to do and the kind of people they need to be to be successful in, 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 you know, having successful with their life in music. You know? A lot of people, I think, they wonder, oh, you know, how can I, how am I going to make this work? Am I going to be able to make a living playing? My answer is yes, you can. If you want it, you can have it. It's not easy, but you can have a life in music if you want it. You need to find your lane with what you're going to do. Uh, and you need to really take care of the music. You need to be a great person. But yes, these things are attainable if you want them. So, um, but so when I was sitting in those pits, especially like the last two years, the year and a half I was there, I like like you were saying, I I was I would get upset at myself because I wasn't happy with what I was doing, you know. And I knew I should be because I'd worked, you know. And again, like there's a lot of trumpet players in New York who don't want to do that at all. You know, Brian Davis doesn't play on, on Broadway shows. He doesn't want to. You know, a lot of people don't want to. For me, I love that sort of old New York thing about playing on Broadway. You know, you sit down in your chair, you punch a, you know, the time card, you know, air quotes, you punch the time card, you do your job, the show gets done, you go to the bar afterwards with all the trumpet players, you know, have a drink and you go home. I liked that aspect of it, the hang aspect of it. But musically, it just was, I don't know. I just, I would get upset at myself because I wasn't as happy with it as I should be. And I started thinking in the pit, like, wow, I think that my goal, I mean, my lot in life is to help people like me when I was a kid be able to do the things that I've done in my career. I, and I started to really romanticize that thought in my head and, that's how I sold my wife on us moving from New York because she really didn't want to move. You know, she, you know, we both love New York, but I just, I said, you know, I don't, I don't think this is what I'm supposed to do. I think 
I'm supposed to help kids like me who want to do this find how how to do it, you know. So, um, yeah. I mean, the, the odds of me doing what I've been able to do are so slim. I grew up in like a trailer park in North Carolina. There's no way I should have become a jazz trumpet player, <laughs> you know. But, um, you know, I, I luckily had great teachers, and I'm just trying to follow in those teachers' footsteps. You know, of showing people how to act, how to get better, how to love the music, how to love what you do, and if you do those things, I, you know, you will have a life and career in music. It's there's no doubt. Me, I've seen it be uh, seen it happen too many times. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, and that's it, you see it in the in the, in the Trump world, obviously. But I mean, it's just part of human nature because you see it in, in every avenue of life where people have an idea uh, of what they want to accomplish. You know, what it means to be successful or be happy or, or anything like that. Um, and then when they do it, when they actually achieve that goal, then there's a sense of of emptiness. Yes. Um, and it's because they're chasing, they're, uh, I just had this conversation with someone the other day, they're chasing an outcome instead of a process. Yes. So when you're, when you become engaged in the process, so if your process is that you want to, uh, help others, well, that's where your education comes in. If your process is to push your limits musically or, you know, technically or things like that, then that's going to be a different kind of thing. Uh, and when you do it that way, you're never you're never bored, and you're never uh, like feeling empty because there's always going to be that next step. Yes. And uh, you know, so I think that's that's really cool though that that you have found uh, at least in, and also in, in in terms of the idea that that our lives go through stages, and what was important to us when we're 20 maybe isn't so important to us when we're 40 or 50 or 60. Yeah, man. Yeah. And, you know. Huge. So yeah, I really love the fact that you have come had that moment of clarity and that you're you know you're choosing to give up something that's good for something that is better for you so yeah and it wasn't easy too i mean when we first moved here and this was we moved here the fall of 2019 so right before the pandemic started when i moved back here we got settled in and i said like oh shit what did i just do <laughs> man i just blew up my freelancing career in new york city where where people like i'm living some i was living someone's dream not not every person's dream but i was living someone's dream man playing on all these great projects and and playing on broadway and going on the road and doing uh you know record dates and then moving here and i was just like gosh man like did i make the right decision but it didn't take long for me to to you know, go back to how I was feeling before when I was in New York. It's like, yes, you know, I wanted to start a family uh, with my, you know, we, me and my wife wanted to start a family. We wanted to have a buy a home and have a backyard and things that you can do in New York, but are, they seem impossible, you know? So, um, yeah, man, it's, it, 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 in the very beginning, it felt like I'd made a mistake, but I mean, it, but, you know, just like moving to New York, was the best thing that ever happened to me at that point in my life. Moving back here um, has just been amazing, you know. Um, and like we were saying before when we started, I don't miss living in New York. And I think if you talk to anybody who lives in New York, they will tell you that they love being in New York, but living there is can be a different story sometimes. You know, it's a very it's difficult to live there, even if even if you're not struggling financially. You know, I mean, you know, you can make a lot of money playing in New York. 
which I don't think people talk about either. You, know, you can you can do really well there playing for just and just freelancing. Um, but things are you know going to the grocery store is a pain in the butt there. Um, going to the post office pain in the butt and you know I guess like also like I said before we started I think living in New York is a young person's game and if you're there long enough you can learn how to deal with it uh, but just for my own personal self it got to be you know too much to to bear you know my last three years there I, I told my close friends this but I was having panic attacks like regularly and um, I and I'd be ha I'd have them in pits you know while playing playing a show I'd be having a panic attack on the train I was having panic attacks and uh and it it was going on for a couple of years and um it's a stressful place to live man <laughs> and it's not for everybody um but musically there's just nothing like it I mean it's such a special place and so many great players and the thing I miss most about being there is the trumpet sections. You know, like you can get into unreal trumpet sections. I used to play in the Birdland Big Band and uh, or sub in the Birdland Big Band and be like John Walsh, Frank Green, Max Darshay, uh, you know, Brandon Lee, Wayne Tucker, uh, Glenn Drews, just unbelievable trumpet sections and then me from like a trailer park in north carolina like wow man like this is amazing but um you know again i'm rambling so <laughs> no, no it's all good man you know that 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 progress and, and like you said you know you like living you're living somebody's dream uh yeah, yeah. And, and it's you know you want to make sure that you're living your dream exactly you know? exactly and uh you know, and granted, you know, uh, you know, whether you're from a trailer park in, in North Carolina or from or you were, you know, born and born and raised in Beverly Hills, uh, you know, we all have to to have go through those struggles yes. to make it. Now, some paths are easier, but just because a path is easier doesn't necessarily mean it's a better path. Yeah, man. Yeah. Reach. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. So and, I mean, like, yeah. Have, have you ever heard of the concept of ikigai? No. Okay. So it's like it's like a Venn diagram okay. sort of thing, and so it's for helping people, like you know, figure out what they should be doing in life. You know, mm -hmm. and so it's like if you had four circles, one circle would be uh, what you love, mm -hmm. and then one circle is what you're good at, and then another circle is what you can get paid for. And then another, the fourth circle is what the world needs and where those okay. all intersect. So, you know, where you could, because you can be really good at something, uh, but not love it. Mm -hmm. And that's what happens to a lot of, a lot of players, you know, it's like, we're, you know, they're good players, but they don't love what they're doing. So that's right. not what they need to be. Or, you know, you, you love it and you're good at it. Uh, but, you know, the, you know, nobody's going to pay you for it. So, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. But, but yeah, it's through yeah. that process of, of trying to find where where you have the, the largest intersection. And if you can find that spot, that's where you want to be. You wow, know? that's interesting. Yeah. yeah that's so, interesting. Yeah. Check what's it out. It called, what's it called again? Ikigai. It's Ikigai. kind of a, okay. yeah, it's, uh, yeah if, you, if you Google it, it's uh, uh, kind of a Japanese process. But okay. uh, yeah, but it, it's, it's a really cool thing to, to think about. I think it's something you can put in your toolbox for your, for your budding students, you know? Yeah. 
It reminds me of a story. It reminds, so I, I subbed on um, The Prom when it was on Broadway in New York. And um, it was a two-trumpet book. And the guy who played lead on is guy, Brian Pareshi, who's uh, first call cat in New York. Great guy, super funny, great jazz player, great lead player. And uh, he's one of the people that got me started on subbing on Broadway, him and um, uh, John Walsh and another trumpet player, Danny John Acucci. Those guys were, got, got me in the, in, the, in the door, so to speak. And um, I, I got, you know, the shows, they started either 7.30 or 8. And so we had an 8 o'clock show. And Brian is like, he's been in New York for decades. So, you know, he's like showing up at 7.55, you know, and like just, you know, ripping up to a, a high, you know, a sea in the staff to see above the staff. And like, okay, I'm ready. Me, I'm getting there an hour and a half before and I'm like shedding the book and I don't miss anything. So he sits down and he has like a bagel or something in the coffee and, and he just goes, Mike, you ever just look at your case and you don't want to open it? <laughs> I was like, uh, like, no, I, I, I'm, I haven't been like that. He's like, yeah, well, I guess it's time to go to work. You know, they took his instrument out and just killed the show. I mean, he's such a great player, but you know, it's, it's not, that kind of thing is, and I get it now as I get older too, you know, I'm almost 40 now. And um, the jobbing aspect of the trumpet in New York City can be like that. You know, it's not always just fun. And I think that's something that young people need to realize too about playing music. Some gigs you get on, they're not fun, you know, but we do them because this is what we do for a living. And and, you know, and, and the gigs that are fun and highly musically rewarding, they make those gigs not as bad. You know, Brian is like, he should, you should have him on the podcast, man. He's great, you know, he's an unbelievable trumpet player, super funny. And, um, you know, he's, he plays with everybody in New York. He's such, so, such in high demand. But, you know, if you ask him, it's like, yeah, man, he's like, this is a job, you know, it's not like all fun and games all the time. Um, and... Um, I think for a lot of students when they get into the real world after they get done with school, that's very hard thing for them to realize. Like, oh yeah, like <laughs> I need to do this gig. It pays really well, but yeah, it's not going to be like, I'm not going to be taking a bunch of souls in this thing. You know? So um, yeah. Yeah. I don't know what you, I don't know what we're talking about. Now. I, I don't know either, but man, <laughs> it's good. It's good. I mean, that, that, yeah. and, it, you know, and I, I've caught, I, I, I've caught a little bit of flack from people, you know, the occasional comment about, you know, eh, why are you going down this rabbit hole and stuff like that. So, yeah, this is what it's supposed to be like, you know, if you've yeah, ever okay. been, to a, if yeah. you've ever been, if you've actually done a hang with somebody, <laughs> you don't know where the conversation is going to go. Yeah. You know, it, yeah. it, it's it's unscripted. It's life. Yeah. Uh, it's like a you know playing the Ornette Coleman tune. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, speaking of which, of jazz, you know, make the. Like how I do that transition there, uh, you know. You said earlier that you know you were you know primarily a, a high note jockey uh, when you started, and then that you wanted to become more of a uh, skilled improviser, skilled jazz player. Um, you know, what did you do? I mean, how how did you how did you develop the vocabulary and the the chops and the the courage basically to to put yourself into that position? Well. Um... Well, first and foremost, listening, 
is the most important thing that anybody can do if they want to become a better improviser. You know? and, and really, I mean, listening a lot. And um, I've always been sort of a voracious listener of music. I mean, uh, you know, I love playing and, uh, and I only have one hobby outside of this, which is golf. But I mean, I love listening to music. Um, and when I was a kid, I listened to music all the time. And um, if you're just transcribing solos and not really listening a lot, I think you do miss something about development that, um, uh, you know, so, something about being exposed to it all the time that was really helpful to your playing. And so when I moved to New York, I, I was here I was in Austin. I was working like six seven nights a week for a long time and then when I got to New York I was I think I might have done like 10 gigs the first year I was there I mean it was really not working out at all because it's so hard to get in the door there in New York so many great players so I listened a lot and I transcribed a lot of solos and during that sort of two years in New York I mean I must have transcribed probably 50 solos and and that stuff is super useful, uh, but a lot of it too is just playing a lot. Ever since I was a young person, I've always worked. I mean, even when I was in high school, I was playing like four or five coffee shops in my, you know, within a 50 mile radius of where I lived. And my parents would take me to the coffee shop and I'd play two hours out of the real book and would be miserable, but I would, I played a lot in front of people and developing that sort of courage playing for people allowed me to be able to step on stage as an adult and not be afraid to play, which a lot of people, young people are they're just afraid to play in front of people. So I love playing in front of people and I just love listening to music and transcribing and, and getting better. And so through that process of not having a lot of gigs, my first two years in New York, um, yeah, I was able to get miles ahead of where I was when I was here in Austin. I mean, I got that two years. I, 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 you know, I jumped plateaus getting better because I had time to practice. And then my first gig in New York, like my first kind of big step in my career was I got to be the contractor on a Broadway show called Sleep No More. And Sleep No More is this great, it's an off-Broadway show. It's been going on for years and years now. But um, they, there's, they opened a restaurant where they wanted a band to play four hours a night, seven days a week. And so my first kind of big gig was contracting and playing on that gig. And so it paid good. So I was hiring musicians that I've been listening to on records when I was a kid. And I told them all, you know, I, there was a couple of regular members, but I told, you know, there was being, always be another horn player. I said, look, you call the tunes, uh, I'll play what I can play. And then we'll just play for four hours, you know, and I would write down the tunes I didn't know. Then the next morning I would wake up, go get my coffee. I would work on the tunes that they called. And then that night I would call those tunes and they would call some more tunes I didn't know. And on the breaks, I say, oh, okay, like oh, that song T for two, you're doing something on the last eight measures. Like, what is that thing you're doing? And they would show me that I would take that home and practice on all 12 keys. And the, you know, that gig had lasted for, two and a half years. And then I went on to be the contractor for the entire Broadway show. But 
that gig, that restaurant gig, I was playing for four hours a night for, I did that gig every night for three months. In that three months, man, I became a player during that three months. I mean, the level of which I improved during that three months was, without that three months, who knows what would have happened to me. It would take me years to progress that much because I was playing with such good players. I was the worst player on stage, but I wanted to become one of those cats. Um, I got so much better in that time. So playing a lot is, and, and listening a lot is the most important thing for people who want to become, uh, uh, you know, somebody who can improvise well. It's just being about it all the time. You know, it's not something that we can just do for an hour or two every day. Got to do it a lot and we got to do it every day. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, there, there are a couple of things like the, that I picked up on, on that. It's like, well, like you're saying, one, you just, you know, you got, you got to listen, you got to do it. Um, and it's surrounding yourself, uh, with, whether it's, uh, virtually or, you know, like through listening to recordings or the best is just being around, being with people who speak that vocabulary oh, and yeah. do that immersion, yeah. like they would say, right. learning a language, you know, so being with those guys. And then it's that balance of shedding at home, but bringing it to the stage because yeah. there's so many people that either a don't want to shed, you know, so that, that becomes very apparent or the ones that, that want to spend all their time in the practice room and never want to go out and actually try and apply it mm-hmm. on the stage until they feel like they've got it perfect. And yeah. it's got to be that, you know, learn, stumble, fix it, do it again, and just keep yeah. going until, until it finally works out. Yeah. Have you ever read that book, The Art of War by Stephen Pressfield? Uh, I have not read uh, the Art of War by Stephen Press. I mean, I've read the the, the, the War of Art. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. this guy's this is this book. He he wrote he wrote this book called the Art of the War of the War of Art, and then he wrote uh, wrote another book called Turning Pro. Mm-hmm. Those two books, like, literally changed my life when I was a young person in New York because it made me think about my practicing in a way that wasn't something that. I had to do it was something that I wanted to do to, wanted to do to get this desired result you know I wanted to be one of the cats in New York that was getting called for these type of things playing at smalls you know and and so I got very for a long time and I'm still like this too I, I keep a, a practice journal it's very detailed this is the things I'm going to work on today these are, this is my goal for the end of the week. You know, I want to be able to play this thing or I'm working on this tempo um, and approaching your practice in a very methodical way. That way you're not just kind of forcing around when you, when you practice, you know, it's just playing your instrument for four hours is useless if you're not working towards some goal. I, in my estimation, you have to be working toward uh, having something under your fingers. That way, when you get on the gig, it's right there. You don't have to think about it. It's right here, and it's automatic. You know? Same thing with trumpet technique. You know, the way that I do practice and the way I play, uh, it allows me to – to the way I play is I'm not attached to the, uh, to the sound. I'm attached to the feeling of playing correctly, which I know and it flies in the face of a lot of different pedagogies. But, you know, the, the, the emphasis on 
primarily the sound. But for me, I focus on the feeling of playing because I can go back to that feeling every time. And I know what it feels like to play really wrong and really hard. Um, so, but having a, having a, a desired goal in mind is I think really important when you're practicing and it allows you to become measurably better faster. You know, you can say, okay, well, you know, six months ago, I really couldn't play in the key of D flat. Now I can play in the key of D flat. Okay. You know, so thoughtful practice is, is super, super important. I think it is, was for me and my development because I, I wasn't that way naturally. I just would sit down and play for four hours and go, okay, I practice for four hours. That's not really practicing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. And here's a question for you because, you know, you, you've got people that, that yeah, and they're going to be in the audience. They're going to be in varying uh, points in their career. And, um, you know, when, when you're younger or when you're like a full-time working pro, you may have time, you may have more time to spend in your practice. Uh, but even with pros, you know, sometimes if you, if you've got a busy like recording schedule, you don't always have four to six hours to practice. Or if you're a, a recreational player or a part-time player and, and you've, you've got a day job and you've got gigs at night, well, how do, how do you make the most of the practice time that you, you, know, that you have a lot of? Maybe you only have two hours of practice a day. Maybe you only have an hour of practice a day. Uh, what, what are some of the, the things that you would suggest to people like, okay, this is the way you should, you should most effectively structure your, your practice and uh, areas that you want to hit on? Well... I would say to analyze your that those people, I mean, it's all situational, right? Like a 20 year old, what they practice and how much they should practice is very different than somebody who's like 40. The most important thing for the trumpet is tone production. Are you able to produce your tone with a minimal amount of effort, getting the maximum amount of result, right? The maximum amount of sound. So when I'm, I mean, I don't really practice trumpet stuff much anymore other than, um, because I don't get it. I don't get it myself in the situations where I'm feeling super beat up, you know? Um, but things I'm always telling my, there's a great book written by this Dutch trumpet player. I can't remember his name, Frank Vanderpool called less is more. And, uh, his whole approach is, like I said before, getting the most amount of sound with the least amount of effort. And so working on tone production, you know, working on just playing like G to G in tune, nice mezzo piano sound, you know, getting that happening and getting the feeling of playing easily. Right. So work on tone production and then musically. Um, what it helped me a lot is a jazz player was picking one person and working on that person for a long time. So I picked Kenny Dorham because a mentor of mine, Rodney Whitaker, who played bass with Lincoln Center Jazz Orchestra and Roy Hargrove, Terrence Blanchard, all these cats. He said, oh, you know, you should just uh, pick somebody. Like, how about Kenny Dorham? I said, okay. I, I knew who he was from R. Blakey and the Jazz Masters, but I didn't really know much else. So, so I would sit, and if I just had 20 minutes, I'd transcribe four bars and really learn how to play that just like he did um, and work and focusing on precision rather than 20 minutes of precise practice is way better than two hours of kind of 
bullshit practice. You know, it's yeah, and just being really concise with what you're working on and and focusing on precision. Um, that would be my advice to somebody who doesn't have a lot of practice time. I don't have a lot of practice time. My wife's pregnant. Uh, you know, I mean, I have some practice time now because it's like school's out. But during the school year, you know, I'm work. I'm still working like three or four nights a week, and then teaching full time. So, um, I do a lot of my practicing through the my teaching of lessons. But um, I do think if you're a young person, and you're a trumpet, it, it doesn't matter if you're a trumpet player or not. But if you're trying to do this, there should be a time in your life where you're practicing four or five hours a day. I mean. You know, I know trumpet, trumpet teachers sometimes will say, oh, you don't want to practice too much because you don't want to hurt yourself. Um, but you need to find a way to play where you're not hurting yourself so you can have four, five hours of dedicated practice time. That's what's going to take to become a cat, you know, on the scene, wherever scene you're at, you know. Um, two hours a day, that's good, but um, you it takes a lot of work man, to get there. And uh, you want to be able to, I had five or six years in New York where I was practicing four or five hours a day. And um, it's easy there because you're working at night. So during the day, my wife would go to work and I'm sitting there and I'm practicing out of the Clark book. I'm playing etudes. I'm learning tunes at the piano. And it's not just all trumpet stuff. I'd be at the piano learning stuff. But um, when you're a young person, take advantage of the free time you have. Because when you get older, like my age now, you just don't have that time. It's just, just, it's just only twenty-four hours a day. So, yeah. <laughs> Those are some some solid, solid, solid tips. I like yeah. that for sure. So you said that uh, you you kind of did the deep dive on Kenny. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, other than I, it sounds it sounded like he was just kind of like the first name that got thrown at you. And you're just like, yeah, yeah, what the hell? I'll just go ahead yeah. and do that. Yeah. But but as you dove into his playing, uh, like, what are some of the big things that that you like impacted you, and that that helped that helped you to continue doing that deep dive? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over thirty thousand mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over six hundred dollars each week. You can also save up to one dollar off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, you know, Kenny started as a, as a saxophone player. And when you start to re- when you really listen I, to me, when I really started listening to Kenny Dorham, he does things that, pe- that other trumpet players don't do harmonically and just sort of like his phrasing. He has a very peculiar way of phrasing certain things. Like sometimes he'll just lay into like a note in the staff. He'll just lay into like on beat two or three. Bah, kind of hold it out and uh he's the only kind of he's the only cat that i've ever heard do things like that but when you check out people like dexter gordon dexter gordon would do that too would just lay into this sort of lay lay into a low a flat or something or some kind of you know whatever tune playing. But he plays certain phrase things not like a trumpet player plays and he also has a very interesting way of navigating two five ones and um uh so his playing to me is striking because it's very melodic but he's 
plays differently than like Freddie Hubbard or uh, Lee Morgan or other cats that were the names in the 60s. You know, Clark Terry. He just got a different way of playing. Um, you know, R. Blake, he called Kenny Dorham the um, uncrowned king of the trumpet. I was like, I refer to him that as the, in the liner notes of some record. And um, I, what he's meaning by that is, that, you know, he didn't have this, the star power of Freddie Hubbard or Lee Morgan or the other cats, uh, you know, pops that were alive in the 60s. But what he was doing and how he was playing was just as inventive and unique as those other cats. But he just didn't play with the fire if Freddie Hubbard or Lee Morgan or pops played with. So um, digging into people like that is good because you start to realize the things that make them special. And the more you do that with people, the more you can readily do that in your own plan and find the things that you do that make that can make your plan special. So the people that I've checked out the most are Clark Terry, Kenny Dorham, uh, and uh, Louis Armstrong. You know, those are kind of like my three wellsprings of of uh, of uh, you know. Uh, like my three cats, you know, who, who I who I go to the most to either transcribe or, or to listen to when I'm in the car or something like that. So, you know, my plane reflects those three cats. So when you hear my plane, I think that if you know that, you feel like, oh yeah, I can hear that those three guys are in there. You know. Yeah. Well, I mean, and it it is very much that personality thing, you know, that comes through. You know, like you know, with with Lee. Uh, the, the the phrase that always gets associated with him is is sassy, yeah, yeah sure, very sassy, yeah. You know? yeah, so yeah. It, and Freddie has just got, you know, not just fire, but it, it's got a level of swagger to it. It's just yeah. like you know, like that that brash kind of thing. And Clark sure. to me, I love Clark. I, I CT. Uh, I think you know for, for people who who've never listened to him, yeah, you, know, you just got to listen to him because yeah. if if you listen to him and then you watch like an interview with him, um, you know his playing and his personality are so in alignment. Oh yeah, oh yeah. And it, it's like listening to him play is like listening to him speak. So like you're talking about like Peter and you know and, and his concept of like the singing trumpet and stuff like that. It's the there, there is no difference between him singing, him talking, him playing. Oh, yeah. It's all Clark. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, Clark Terry, I think, is probably one of the greatest trumpet players to ever live. Not just jazz, but, I mean, his trumpet playing, he has what Jim Pandolfi calls, like, that kind of sound that makes you smile, you know? You don't have to be a trumpet player to enjoy the tone that he got. It's light. It's right on top of the pitch. It's not this sort of like blary sound it projects is perfect right um i mean you know in lee morgan lee morgan has got the most identifiable quote of any trumpet player alive you know his first four notes on moaning you know Be-be-be-bop. i mean like is there a more iconic you know trumpet quote you can play it's other than that one so um yeah man these cats you know if being you know, these cats and the way they are and their personalities and, and I mean, I never met any of these guys, but um, I, they're my access to jazz culture. You know, I, I'm not from an air. I'm not, my existence, I, 
I just wasn't brought up around jazz musicians and, and there's a cultural aspect of being these cats and like, and there's a cultural aspect that one must get. And it's not just from their playing. It's how they talk. It's how they dress, you know, and that aspect of the music is very important to get, especially if you're someone like me, who's not, I didn't grow up in that culture. You know? yeah. um, it's very important to the music and, um, and respecting these cats uh, and respecting not only just how they play, but their personalities uh, is very important. I think it's very mm -hmm. important. Yeah. So like uh, right now, uh, who, or are there any players that you could point to and say, yeah, this, this is kind of, this is kind of one of the cats that, that I think is kind of going to move, move the needle a little forward in, in, uh, in the jazz culture. Hmm. I don't know, man. I mean, I know the cats I like. I love Leroy Jones. Leroy Jones is like kind of, I'm obsessed with him right now. I've been obsessed with him for a long time, but I should have named him and my three cats, you know, but he's another one that's very important to my uh, musicianship just because I, I, his sound and the way he plays and his phrasing is very um, appealing to me because I love New Orleans music so much. So I, for me, you know, I, especially in New York, I played a lot of traditional jazz music and um, that kind of playing influences all of my type of playing, no matter what kind of setting I'm in, you know, uh, that kind of playing really influences me. So I love, love his playing. I mean, I guess you, are you talking about younger cats or just people on the scene? I, you know, I don't know, man. I, there's lots of great players out here though. Um, I don't know. Well, no, like you know, I mean, he's 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 gone now, but you know, like Roy Hargrove was one of those voices. Yeah, you know, just yeah. like okay, he's just kind of taking the old stuff and and really kind of moving it. I see what you're saying. I think probably the most important cat out here right now is Nicholas Payton. Nicholas Payton is like, I mean, this guy he must be the he must be the greatest musician alive right now. I I don't know anybody else who can do what he does. He's like, have you heard him? I mean, he's always been a great trumpet player, but have you heard him play in the last year? I haven't. This cat, he's always been um, like unbelievable, but he has got a different gear with his trumpet playing now. It's un, it's absurd how much trumpet this guy is playing. It's unreal. He plays like every instrument. He's an amazing pianist. He can play the piano and the trumpet at the same time. And it's like not just like a gimmick, like he's like it's supremely musical. Hmm. Um, I love what he has to say about music and like the culture of music and you know the music business. I I think he's the most important jazz musician, or I think he's the most important musician right now, man. He's just I, I'm a I'm obsessed with I've always been. He's I mean he's always been an incredible player, but um, I, I just don't know anybody who's playing more music than Nicholas Payton right now. I mean, he's just, it's just unbelievable. You know? His last two records on, on, on the Smoke Sessions label are like, I mean, they're unreal, you know. Um, that's who I would probably point to, you know. That's who I'm always listening to these days, really. It's like all the cats I was saying before and like Nicholas Payton. He's unreal, man. Oh, I'm going to definitely have to check that out. Yeah, yeah it's he's he's really special. I mean, I, like I said, I just don't know anybody who's playing more music than him right now. 
he's just there's lots of great musicians out here obviously but he's just he's unreal yeah yeah oh cool well add that to my listening list <laughs> yeah <laughs> that is yeah. For sure. all right man well we're gonna uh uh before you you melt down there in that uh, <laughs> austin yeah. heat if you yeah. turn on that air conditioning i understand completely no no i'm good you know actually the sun went down i think it's gonna rain this we need it. So. Uh, well, we, we do have a few segments that we need to get uh, into here before we can uh, wrap things up. And uh, our first segment is uh, Sound Off. And that's brought to us by good friend Michael Barkley of Barkley Microphones. Um, it's about approach to sound. Um, so when, when you're, uh, let's, let's do this from, from the, the jazz perspective. Um, and I think because it's um, like in the classical world, uh, yes, everybody's got their own unique sound, and you should be able to identify a player by their sound. Uh, however, there is a somewhat more limited range of acceptable sound mm -hmm. in the classical world as yeah. opposed to the jazz world where you have a lot more uh, versatility in the sound that you can create. So if, if you know, you're going to give advice to uh, one of your students, somebody out there listening, on how to develop their unique trumpet sound mm -hmm. what are some of the, the things that you would want to say to them well young people should be recording themselves every time they play like without fail especially nowadays everyone's got a phone they can record you got to be recording yourself all the time and, and finding the things that work and finding the things that don't work um articulation is a big deal getting a, a method of articulating that allows you to get crispness and softness, but not this kind of like, can I play? Is that okay? I know. Sure, sure. Like, I hear a lot of people kind of going like, tonguing like that, you know, and it's very hard and abrasive. And not only is it not musically correct for a lot of situations, but it just doesn't sound good. But getting a method of articulating that allows you to be able to play with a good sound. Now, if I go, and that's not a good sound, I don't think. But you know, smoothness, and working on smoothness a lot in your playing will fix a lot of things in your sound. You know, um, um, not playing too loud. You know, <laughs> just like I was saying before in the beginning, what, excuse me, what you hear behind the bell is not what they hear. You gotta come to terms with that. You gotta, you gotta learn how to listen to your sound from out there. And it takes a lot of courage to be able to do that, but you can't judge your sound based off what you hear, you know? Um, and then, um, you know, tone production, tone production, tone production, tone production, everything comes from tone production. Range, flexibility, all comes from how easy can you produce your buzz that's or, or you know or produce your sound oh i probably shouldn't have said buzz <laughs> how easy it is produce your sound you want to be able to produce your sound very very easily and if you can do that then you can take that kind of playing all over your all over the horn but um yeah that's what i would say about tone protection recording yourself is super important because you can directly hear things that you can't hear 
in the moment when you're playing. Like, oh, wow, like whenever I play a, a, a G, it's really sharp. I need to learn how to play this instrument so I'm not so sharp in this register. Things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. All right. Uh, next segment uh, is called Geared Up, and Geared Up is all things geared. And uh, <laughs> it is uh, brought to us by Venture Mouthpieces, where technology, design, and craftsmanship intersect. Use the code TrumpetGurus21, get 10% off your order. So um, the discussion of gear, you know, that's, yeah. that's the, the big rabbit hole that we all can go down. Um, but you know, we got to take that trumpet guru's spin on that. So, yeah. uh, you know, what what are your thoughts about gear? And, and I guess particularly uh, when you're looking at, at trying to optimize, as we we're just talking about sound, optimizing your sound, optimizing uh, your ability to produce the kind of music that you want to want to produce. How does gear play into that? And, and what kind of advice do you give to people for for being able to logically go through a gear choosing process? Sure. Well, it's a very particular thing, right? Um, like, just talking about mouthpieces for one, you know. Um, I'm a 3A in Reinhardt speak. I spent a lot of time playing as a 3B, but which is one of my big problems when I was in my 20s. I was type switching a lot. I know we're going to talk about Reinhardt stuff very much, but I was type switching a lot. So some days it'd be great. And then other days it would be a complete disaster. So I play as a three A and Reinhardt says that I should be playing on wide mouthpieces. I cannot play on wide mouthpieces. They just don't feel right. So I play pretty much everything on a four burden five S. And then, um, when I play lead, I play very, very small stuff. I play the Roger Ingram lead one mouthpiece, which is very small. Um, and if I'm not, it, that's for like playing big band stuff, but if I'm playing more and playing high and loud, if I'm playing, you know, sort of more just not crazy stuff, I'll play a Greg Black, New York one. I always tell people that you need to find equipment that allows you to play with the least amount of effort when you're playing whatever situation you're in. Some people can play greatly trumpet on like a 3C. I know there's a cat in town here named Eric Johnson, so an unbelievable lead trumpet player. He played lead on a 3C for years and years. And I mean, it sounded, I just sounded incredible. There's no way I could, I can't even play a 3C. I can't play a two on a 3C. It's just, it doesn't work for me. Um, and so it takes a lot of experimentation, uh, but don't be afraid to invest to find things that work for you because what works for someone else probably won't work for you. So when I hear teachers saying stuff like, oh, you need to play the biggest thing you can find or biggest thing you can play on. To me, that's not a great way to go about trying to find what works for you. You need to get a lot of mouthpieces and play a lot of mouthpieces to find what works for you. Because um, again, it's not, it's going to be different for everybody. Um, and so with horns, same kind of thing. I mean, I, I, I could pull my screen down. I, there's, I probably have, I don't know, 15 trumpets behind me. You know, um, I've settled on this one, which is a Del Quadro. Uh, you know, for me, for what I do, having to be being a jazz player who plays lead trumpet, it works really good for me. It might not work for somebody else, but 
the point I'm trying to make is like, you need to try a lot of stuff, record yourself on gigs, find out what works for you. So you can not think about gear <laughs> as much, you know? Uh, so, but definitely it takes, it deserves some time finding out uh, what works for you. I listened to your, you had Wayne Bergeron on, right? Right. He was, and he talked a lot about, you know, I mean, for him, it was like the equipment that he sort of fell into kind of saved his career, you know, like he was having all these problems and he found it, found a, a diameter that allowed him to get some vibration happening. And, um, you know, that's Wayne Bergeron, you know, <laughs> so it's like, you got to try a lot of stuff and don't be afraid to try things that are off the beaten path, you know, um, find what works for you because there's a lot of stuff out there and, um, it's in your best interest to find us what works for your anatomy, for your T structure, your list. We all got different components to work with. Yeah. Well, and you know, the, the there's, you know, there's always the outliers. You know, like you're mm -hmm. saying, there, there's, there's a guy that can play a three C and can play yeah. Yeah, Jerry Hay is one of those guys, you know, he did all of his work on a three C. Okay. Yeah. Fantastic. Uh, but then there are other people that, you know, you, you have the, the opposite of the spectrum, like Lou Solar. You know, who, who, you know, every other note, he was changing a mouthpiece. Yeah. Um, but, you know, somewhere between those two extremes is probably what's going to work for the average player. Yeah. Um, but I think that the one thing that people tend to forget about is the changes that occur in us uh, as we as we both improve in our playing. So as you become more efficient. Uh, or less efficient, you may have to change your gear because as yes. your approach to playing uh, has yes. changed, technically you have to change your gear. Yes. And as we age. Yes. Know. Yes. Brian Davis hit me to this Roger Ingram lead one. And, uh, and uh, when I first got it, I could not play it. I mean, I couldn't play a note on it hardly. And um, I remember telling him so much, telling him that, and, you know, he's a nice cat. So he's like, yeah, well, you know, this, that, and maybe this and that. But I think probably what he knew at the time was that like, I'm playing really incorrectly and that's why I can't play this thing. So now when I, I, I spent a lot of time during the pandemic practicing on that mouthpiece. And I don't know if you're familiar with this mouthpiece. It's like the sixties Maynard mouthpiece that he played during on the roulette stuff. Right. I might be wrong about that, but it's Maynard played it during a certain time in his career. And it is, comically shallow comically tight it's a 30 drill i mean you can't you can't sit, play you can't try to be putting a lot of air through the, through the mouthpiece it's just not going to work for you but with me practicing on that mouthpiece it made me realize oh wow like these notes are really close together you know if i like i do this all the time with people if i go like uh, like uh You know these notes are really close together and for a lot of people to try to do that and especially pick it up on a podcast and risk biffing it it would be they'd be having a panic attack right but these notes are really close together and that mouthpiece helped me realize that you know and so i can take that approach and bring it to this mouthpiece and it still works you know so i wouldn't have learned that if i hadn't played that mouthpiece so it's you know um you know it's it's important you know it's 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 important to experiment Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I remember the first time I uh, played a Z, a Yamaha Z, the Bobby Shoehorn. Yes. Yeah. I 
could not play that thing to save my life. Yeah, could yeah. not play it. It's like as soon as I it, I couldn't play a, I, I couldn't play outside of the staff. I should say, without that thing shutting down on me. Right. And then uh, I yes. actually had to play it for a while because you know my horn was in the shop and I, I borrowed it from a friend. And when I started to back off and just yes. you know center more, all of a sudden the horn just opened up, and it's like holy crap. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So. That's everyone's experience when they start to do that. You know, it's, it's everybody's experience, to, you know, a lot. So a lot of people, I think they're, they think they're experiencing chop problems when they're encountering issues like that. Like, Oh, uh, above when I get to a C or a D, the, the horn is shutting off for me. My chops are like, I'm not in the right position or something. Um, in my experience, when you get people to start to, have that experience of backing off um they can all of a sudden they can start to get they can like squeak out an f or an f sharp or a high g um and then um some of them they'll go okay well okay now I get these notes let me learn how to now open them up some people will go okay well these are just fake notes and uh abandon it because they can't automatically be louder but the thing about playing that way is if if, if you play if you if you go just, I'm playing like a piano volume. Being able to play these notes and giving them just to speak. Um, if you play that way for a week, two weeks, three weeks, what you'll find is that those notes will start to get louder without you even having trying to get, to get them loud because you're finding the resonance. And that's what people who they who experiment and, and, and they sort of abandon it because they're not getting these big loud notes. That's what they miss is that you have to do you have to make that way your way of playing. The sound will start to open up, which is the whole point of that book, Less is More by Frank, Frank Vanderbilt. The sound will start to develop. You need to learn how to be able to produce these notes. Um, and you can't get there by just nailing them, you know. It, that will work some days, but you won't be able to be able to pick up the horn and be able to produce those notes, uh, which is, again, sort of the fundamental basis of my teaching now and what took me a long time to figure out. And I'm glad I figured it out now. I wish I figured it out. I know in the, the Stevens uh, method, they, he talks about statics. So just mm -hmm. kind of getting getting these, like, whistles almost to, to come out of the horn and that you know that you just do that and then the note will start to to develop the sound and i know doc has a, a very similar concept that he talks about like uh like some of the what is it puff ball or putty ball or something like that kind of playing where you just yeah. you just really kind of playing this these super super soft notes just just trying to get them to speak in the register um do you so is that that close to kind of the concept you're talking about with 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 those kind of uh glissandos you're doing yeah i think so um you know i didn't really i mean i did that putty ball routine a little bit um i i get that now now knowing what i know now i get what the idea behind it is um but these little glissandos i actually got this from brian davis he's the one who taught me how to do this and he and he i don't want to blow up his teaching but anybody should take a lesson with him but he that's he teaches you to do that in conjunction with the learning how to do the wedge breath and um that 
you know, it was another thing I got from him that I don't think I do it exactly like he does. We do different kinds of playing, but um, the feeling of doing that is very important to how I play now, that sort of efficiency of being able to have the notes close, you know, down there. Being able to have the notes feel close like that um, is a, a big part of my overall approach and how I teach, you know. Um, yeah, so the putty ball thing, I, I, I understand what it is, but I, I didn't really do a lot of, with it, to be honest with you. But I know some, I know some, I know Rich does it a lot, or he did. Man. Well, just had to, uh, to ask <laughs> your opinion on that. Sure, so. yeah, sure. All right, so. Let's get to that final segment. This is my right. favorite one. Uh, and this is the uh, Robinson's Remedy Rapid Fire Round, brought to us by good friends uh, at Robinson's Remedy, that uh, rapid relief for those beat up chops from those four hour salsa gigs. That's right. Um, so uh, this is just a series of questions that goes all over the place and uh, just a little bit of fun to end things out. So Mike, are you ready? Yeah. All right, let's do this thing. All right, who's the biggest influence on your life that is not a trumpet player? Um, my father. All right, what's your favorite book? Mm, the Art of War by Stephen Pressfield. War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. Sorry. <laughs> Art of Wars by Sun Tzu. Yes, by Sun Tzu. Yeah. All right. What's the worst movie you've ever seen? Oh my gosh. Um, let's say um, the last Miles Davis movie that came out with Don Cheadle. Okay. Uh, if you weren't a trumpet player, what would you want to be? Some sort of engineer. Right. Uh, what's your favorite drink? Makers on the rocks with a, spl with a splash of water. Ooh. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm with you except for the splash of water in the rocks. <laughs> that's how That's how Frank Sinatra took it. He took it with a splash of water on the rocks. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Um, you could have uh, a dinner party and invite any three people in the world, any three living people. Who would you want to have there? Three living? Yeah. Other than other than friends and family, because you know they're going to be there anyway. Any three living people. Sure. Um, let's say Whit Marsalis. Gosh. I, 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 my inclination is to get weird. You know, get a, so three people who are super weird to get together. <laughs> let's say Whit Marsalis. Um, John Faddis and Wayne Bergeron. Oh, man. <laughs> what a hang. Yeah, yeah. I, I'll make sure I'm there with the camera for that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, three additional seats at your dinner table for any three people from history, any three people no longer with us. Louis Armstrong, um, Jimmy Heath, gosh, Ornette Coleman. <laughs> it's either going to be a great discussion or a fist fight at yeah, the, at I, that I, dinner. I, yeah. I, I, think, I think a little bit of both yeah, actually. Yeah, 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 yeah. Especially if the uh, makers is flowing. Yeah, right. Uh, all right. Lacquer plated or raw? Raw. All right. Thanks for, for that, Mike Del Quadro. <laughs> uh, is that a grizzly or, or a Grand Campagna? This is the Grande Campagna. And this was this horn was made for Marquis Care, uh, Marquis Hill, and uh, it's it's the only thing that's different about it 
is it has this bell that was made by Andy Taylor. So this is not a copper bell. Um, this horn, is, this is the last horn I'll ever play. It's unbelievable. I, I, it, I love that horn so much. Mike does great work. He does. he does. And he's got a great beard. So He does have a great beard. I got. I bought it from Trent Austin. Shout out to Trent Austin. Uh, uh, yeah, shout out to my boy Trent. Yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, next question. What is your favorite quote? There are two kinds of music, good and bad. I play the good kind. That's by Louis Armstrong. All right. Good. Uh, mine is, uh, we play both kinds of music. <laughs> Country and Western. That's right. That's right. <laughs> All right. Uh, what is your greatest fear? Snakes. Mm, okay. Uh, you could be granted one superpower. What would it be? Oh, boy. Um, flight. All right. Uh, what aspect of trumpet playing do you feel is the most overrated volume and what aspect do you think is the most underrated tone all right you can go back in time and give your younger self one piece of advice about music Oof, boy don't worry about money the money will come all right and uh what piece of advice would you give yourself about life Floss. <laughs> Floss. Take care of your teeth. Yeah, well, yeah. There is that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and uh, final question for you, Mike Sailors. What do you want your legacy to be? I want to be known as somebody who helped students, who helped trumpet players reach their goals, especially the ones who come from walks of life where they have no business ever dreaming of being a musician or dreaming of touring the world or dreaming of living in New York, help people reach their very lofty goals. Awesome. Well, that is a noble undertaking. You know, uh, the next generation does need, uh, need, guides and mentors and uh it's nice to know that, that there's someone who's who's uh out there in the education field is not just doing it to make a million dollars certainly not doing it for that that's for sure <laughs> <laughs> yeah man well man, hey it has been an absolute blast getting to to know you uh and i'm looking forward to the day that you and i can sit together with that glass of makers on the rocks oh well, man right. yeah Thanks, man. I'm a big fan of what you do. This, this, this podcast is really great. And uh, thanks for having me on. Oh, it's my pleasure. And uh, links to uh, Mike's website is, uh, are in the show notes. So make sure you check him out. He's got some great projects going on, uh, some, of, uh, some great recordings. And, uh, you know, please, if you're in the Austin area, check him out. And uh, also, I'm gonna put, I think I'll put a link for the uh, for the books that you mentioned in there as well. So cool. Those out those. those I gotta check yours out. By the way, I, I, is that that's on your website? That is on my website. It's not on the okay. Trump's website, but it's on my josejohnson.com website. Right. I'm gonna get it. All right. Hey, it's available on Amazon. So help send Jeff Bezos to space. Buy my book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
<laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much for spending time for us uh, with us on this episode of the Trumpet Guru saying make sure that you like, subscribe, share. Uh, and uh, if you've got suggestions for a future topic, future guest, please let me know and do my best to get them on. So to close it out, as always, peace and slide, Grease. We out. Thanks for hanging with us today. This podcast is all about creating deeper connections through our mutual love of music and the trumpet life. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast and also like and share this episode with a friend. We want to see the hang grow for show. Please support our sponsors and consider becoming a personal supporter of this podcast as well. Remember, for less than the price of a bottle of valve oil a month, you can keep this podcast moving smoothly. The Trumpet Guru's Hang is recorded at the Candy Factory, a co-working space and social club located in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Jose Johnson is the executive producer. Post-production editing is by Mitch Bowers. Our opening theme song was composed and performed by Lexi Signal. And our closing theme music comes courtesy of The Greatest Funeral Ever. Incidental music is by Ethan Swayze and Jose Johnson. Graphic design by Ann Kirby of The Sweet Corps. The Trumpet Guru's Hang podcast is produced in collaboration with the So Good Lancaster Media Group.